might sneeze. Um, quick before we get into the sermon, uh, those concerned about issues related to security, um, we had a, a meeting with MPI with all of our, a big group of our volunteers this morning, which was a great little training. There'll be a video this week of John interviewing me and hopefully Kent Rohauser on like what's going on inside the church, and then there'll be a briefing on it at the congregational meeting on the 19th. So if you're interested in what's going on with that, um, there it is. Uh, so, uh, so this morning's going to be a little different. So I'm going to preach for like 30 minutes exactly, which is a miracle. It will be a miracle in and of itself. You'll know that God is with us. And then we're going we're gonna, to, I'm going to talk about the big picture of what we're talking about this morning. And then we're going to sing and reflect on the big picture question. And then Vince is going to come up and talk for about 13 minutes, specifically about like how to do this right now ourselves in the most practical way possible. Okay, so here we go. Right. I hope over the 10 weeks of substance, um, you have gotten to the point where you believe this sentence, where Jesus says that in the time of the Messiah, when the Messiah comes and the Spirit is given to God's people and that there will be something that will happen in us and that people who are outside of the church and the people of God will look at us and say, um, they, are oak, they are oaks of righteousness and they are a planting of the Lord for his splendor. Right, that that's, we're not just meant to be what it refers to in the sentences above, that, that instead of ashes or all the pain and victimization of our lives, that God's goal in Christ is not just to bind up all those wounds, but to splint them so that we can be healed in Christ, so that he can lift us up in strength to be those who carry others. Does that make sense? And so he says, and we spent all year memorizing this passage, and the first verse in this passage from 2 Peter is, is that his divine power has given us everything we need for life and for godliness, right? And so we talked about over the last eight weeks, these, the way, the way to pursue how God forms substance in us, right? That there are these four marks of it in us, that it's self-sacrificial love, the mind of Christ, virtuous freedom, and keeping in step with the Spirit. Those are pursued kind of by four like normal practices and mindsets of embracing the ordinary and escaping diversion, embracing discipline, and this morning we'll talk about belonging to the formational community. Now, this is partly rooted in these verses we talked about where Jesus said that what this all comes down to really is not how hard you try, but how many masters you have. That's the real question. Do you, do you have two masters, that is, Jesus and worldliness, or do you have one? And, and it's interesting the way he talks about this, because when he says you can't have two masters, right, sometimes people might assume that because it's Jesus, and Jesus is like a religious figure, that that can't is a can't of morality or Judiciousness, right? That like, you can't do that. Like, it's morally wrong. Now, it is morally wrong, and he says that in other places, but the can't of this passage is actually the, the practical can't. You, you can't do it. You can't jump off the edge of a building and expect to flow upward, right? You can't be mean to everybody in your life and expect for people to adore you. You can't, right? You can't set things on fire in your lap and expect not to be burned. Like, there's, there's certain things that they're—it's never going to happen, right? It's never going to work. And one of the things that's never going to work is having two masters. It's a, it's a, it's a functional can't, right? And, he says, because, and the reason you know that is because he says, you can't have two masters because—reason—you're going to love one and hate the other one. 
or you're going to be devoted to one, do what one of them says, and you're going to despise the other, not do what the other one says. It doesn't actually work. You can't really be fully devoted to two masters who want opposite things. It's impossible. It'll just destroy you. You'll be torn in two. You'll feel choked by all the things that you're supposed to do to make everybody happy. You'll be full of anxiety and misery. It can't work, right? And so discernment is recognizing that and fleeing having two masters and pursuing having one master, which Jesus says looks like this. Pursuing God's kingdom and God's righteousness, what God is doing in the world, his kingdom, and his righteousness, his character, what he's like, right? Now, some of you may hear me say this, and you say, look, look, Nick, you know, honestly, I really appreciate the graphics and you writing this all, all this stuff. That's so nice, and you've had some cute little jokes in the series, but I'm, listen, I, it's not happening for me, okay? So, like, I believe all that stuff. Like, I've read those verses, I believe all that stuff, and it's just not happening, right? And why is that? And in order to look at that question, we've got to go back to one of the main things we said in the first week, which was that one of the reasons why we tend to be worldly is because we become worldly in a different way than we try to become godly. We try to become godly by, like, coming to church and hearing sermons and taking in some content and thinking that will change us. And then we go out and we're immersed in the world and we just absorb uh, worldliness. You see? There's totally different things. And so what happens is absorption beats sipping. Do you understand? And so what ends up happening is we go to church, we might go a couple of times a month, and we listen. We might even listen relatively attentively to the sermon. You might even read your Bible from time to time, okay? And it's not going to happen. It's another can't. That can't work, okay? One of the ways to think about this is I would sum it up this way, that God forges substance in us through an environment of immersion, absorption, imitation, and experience called the local church. Okay? It's it's an environment of immersion, absorption, imitation, and experience. You could say it, the short version would be, we absorb substance through the church. But the, the minute you say just the church, it's dangerous, especially for younger people that think they know the Bible, because it's very easy when, when you're younger and you're like into Jesus to think, I'm going to follow Jesus and I'm just going to follow like, Jesus. And so I'm going like, to read my Bible and I'm going to be spiritual and blah, blah, blah. And really you feel like, feel like the church kind of gets in the way of that almost. And you're like, well, I'm part of the church universal. Okay, there is no such thing as the church universal in that sense. Okay? Because if you're like, I'm not part of the local church, but I'm part of the church. The church. No, you're not. Because if you're part of the church without being part of the local church, then the church is just an abstraction to you. It's just like floating idea that you generally associate yourself with, which means you're believing in something that isn't true. There's no such thing as the universal church as an abstraction. The universal church is a thing. The only way, and the only way you can interact with it is if you interact with like these folks right? The people of an actual concrete local church, and then you could like, in your mind, kind of like broaden that and be like, oh, I guess that all of these kinds of like people in the whole world, I guess we're all just like one big family. Right. That's the universal church. And for many people, we're deceived into thinking we care about the church, and yet what happens is we're, we haven't actually been deceived into not believing in the church or not caring about the church. But what we've allowed to happen is a falsehood of the abstraction of the church universal to take the place of where our affections should be set on the actual human beings in the church local. Because here's the thing. 
Loving the universal church is kind of like saying you're a lover of humanity, right? Stalin said he was a lover of humanity, and it was so important to kill those 50 million people to save humanity, right? G.K. Chesterton said, never trust somebody that says they love humanity. Only trust people who love their neighbor, right? And that's not just true politically, and it is true politically, It's also true personally in relationship to spirituality. Never trust somebody that says that they believe in the church universal. Say, great, who did you confess your sins to this week, and who did you let confess their sins to you so that you could pray for them so they could be healed? Who did you help? Which mom did you take a meal to? How did—ask them that question. Otherwise, they're a lover of humanity. And you and I cannot be transformed unless we are immersed, absorbing, imitating, and experiencing the church practical, present, incarnate, personal, local. That's why I say all the time, the local church, the local church, the local church, right? This is one of the ways I summed it up in the book is the concrete local church— you see, I have to put two adjectives in front of church just to make sure this isn't confusing. The concrete local church is the place where the gospel can not only be heard, but also seen, experienced, and absorbed in a comprehensive community in which Christ is Lord. Nothing else in Christian faith or experience can do this. You see, because we become worldly by absorption. Human beings are—see, you and I want to believe that we are educated— Right? Most of the people in this room are, are among the most highly educated people in the history of the planet, right? If you, like, graduated high school, you're one of the most educated people in the history of the planet. Much of, many of us have gone beyond that, right? And so we like to think of us as, ourselves as educated people. So we're the kind of creatures that take in information, we process it, and we incorporate what we want, and we intellectually defecate what we don't. And that's actually not how human beings function. How human beings really change is that they are in communities in which they absorb all kinds of things, okay? So one example could be like this. Lexi and I lived in Florida for seven years, and in February we'd say we're never going to leave, and in June we said, why do we live here? It's kind of just the opposite here in Wisconsin. And so in June, because you'd go to the beach in June, and the water was still cold, and yet the sun was so hot— You could be under an umbrella, drinking something cold, and the sweat would be pouring off of you, right? And you, oftentimes, in the middle of June, the wind would just die. Just all the winds from the spring and the fall were just gone. And it was nothing like, but settled hotness, okay? And it was stifling. And it's unpleasant, right? Now, when you experience that, you essentially have three options, okay? You can retreat to air conditioning inside a building. Which is great, but it kind of defeats the whole purpose because the whole purpose is being outside, right? Which is kind of like Christians who are like, well, we're going to be godly and we're just like never going to go out in the world anywhere, right? That doesn't work because we're in week two, we're sent to the world, so that doesn't work. Second is you can just bring an umbrella and lots of really cold drinks and like frozen grapes to eat, hoping that that'll cool you down enough, okay? You can do that. It doesn't work because you can't drink enough— to come in one spot to cool the whole thing when every square inch of your body is getting cooked on the outside. It's just over—it's too overwhelming functionally. You can drink enough to go have to find a disgusting, dirty beach bathroom, but it won't actually cool you off, okay? But there's a third option, and the third option, if you've gotten really heated up, is actually a relatively unpleasant option because in June, the water's actually still pretty cold, and you're now really hot, 
And to jump into the water to get cooled off is really jarring, right? And the reason I tell you this is because that is how a lot of people feel when they are invited to come to Jesus— and they realize that that's really what they're being invited to. They don't want to jump in the water. So what they do is they try to settle for drinking cold drinks. Do you understand? And so they come to church a couple times a month, and they're like committed to Jesus, and they're like, yeah, I really like this Jesus thing. It's really going to help me. And they do the like sipping thing, and they realize they don't, they don't, they're frustrated because they just keep getting hotter, right? And they're like, this isn't working, right? Okay, it's not working because it can't work. It's another one of those divine can'ts. The only way to get cool is you've got to jump into the water and deal with the fact that it jars your whole nervous system for about 40 seconds, and then you feel fine, and then you cool down, and then you can get out of the water and do stuff on the beach and go back, and get—when you get hot, you can just go back in the water. And like—and here's the thing. When you're in the water, you are not outside of the—, the Immersion of the sun's rays. The sun is still shining on you. You are in the presence of the sun dumping all the heat it possibly can on you. It just doesn't matter because you are in an even more powerful, closer immersion. And because of the immersion of the water, it overcomes the immersion of the sun even though you're still in the sun. And you see, Jesus designed the church to be a closer immersion in which we can be immersed in the experiences of godliness and absorb godliness from other people God is working in around us and not leave the world, still be in the world, still live in a, norm, a normal life in the normal world. But because of the, the proximate immersion of the church, we can be put in a place so that we can move in and out of the functional church out into the world where we're not in the church, come back and forth, and we can maintain the spiritual body temperature of godliness, even when we're moving around naturally in the world. And you see, what, the way Jesus teaches about the church, the way the Bible teaches about the church, you cannot get past this dynamic, which means you cannot expect to really grow deeply in godliness over time without a relationship to the church, the, lo the local church, that can be described as Immersion. You see, if you're related—see, it's not a question of morally speaking, are you going to church enough, right? Do you have to go to church three times a month or four times a month or 51 times a year in order to be right with God? None of that—that's totally irrelevant. The question is, you have to so be connected to the church so as to be sufficiently immersed so that you can absorb and experience godliness— through the work of the Spirit, so that your spiritual temperature can be brought to that place, so that you can live a normal life, sense to the world, functioning in all those ways. Does that make sense? That's the question. Is it immersive? So a couple questions we can ask. There's two things I want to say about this. The first is that the church is Jesus' instrument of spiritual immersion and absorption. I just want to explain this from Scripture briefly in case you're not clear on it. In Mark 3, 14, it's the place where Jesus calls the apostles— and it says that out of his disciples, he selected 12 specifically. And the first reason it gives for why those apostles had, were selected was not to be given special, special God powers. The first thing it says is so that they could be with him. So Jesus selected these 12, and those 12 were going to be with him wherever he went for the next three years because most of what they were going to learn about Jesus, they were going to learn by absorption. Do you understand? In Matthew 28, 18 to 21, it's the Great Commission. It's he, Jesus says, go into all the world and make disciples, right? A disciple means somebody who is like the master. So there's an absorptional 
imitational relationship, right? And he says, I want you to baptize them and teach them to obey everything that I've commanded. Now, do you see in both of those? Baptism is the leaving off of a name and taking on of a name. It's, it's the leaving off of a certain life and taking on of a new life. It is the putting behind the death of sin and taking on the life of Christ. It is taking on the name of Jesus that you're one of his disciples, and it's becoming, therefore, part of his thing called the church. Now, all of those things in baptism, all the images, all the cleansing, all the death and resurrection, is designed to be so formative in us that when we go through baptism, we realize we are done making that decision. That's what—that's how baptism is meant to help us spiritually, that we realize what's happened when we come to Jesus, and that when we're baptized, we're done making that decision about whether or not we belong to Jesus. That decision is made. It's—we're done making it. And now we're going to live that decision out because you can only be immersed in something you'll get into. You see, if you come to Jesus or you're, you're still deciding whether or not to believe in Jesus, and you're like, well, I'll try these things or I'll do this, whatever. It does, none of that works. It's a divine can't. None of that can ever work. You have to believe in Jesus. And baptism says, I'm done with that. I've made this decision. Now I'm in this. I'm immersed in it. I'm going to let it transform me. I'm going to stay in the water until my body temperature gets where it needs to be. Now, one of, one of the main metaphors that the Bible uses over and over again is that a family. In fact, the most common image of what we are as the church is a family. And one of the reasons for that is because it's not totally a metaphor. It's actually quite literal, right? <clears throat> and that may scare some of you because you may be from families that you do not think of as divine gifts, okay? And you might think, I don't know that I want another family, Nick. That sounds terrible, right? And I get that. But that's what the Bible says we are. And you might say, well, Nick, there's nothing as dysfunctional as a family. I mean, everything just kind of happens and nobody does anything about it. I, I've, um, every once in a while I'll consult with a pastor who's the pastor of a smaller church, and they want to know, like, you know, why churches I've, I'm at are big or whatever, and they're, and they're like, here's what's going on at my church. What do you think we should do? And it's, it's always really obvious what they should do. I mean, anybody can tell them. And so I say, this is what you need to do. You need to do this, this, this. It's usually you need to confront this person, that person, that person, right? And then here's what the person almost always says. Every once in a while they'll say, you know what, you're right, you need to do that. Most of the time, this is what they say. Nick, I know your church is big, and it's like maybe a big corporation or something, but our church is more like a family, and I just can't do that. And what I say to them is, no, no, your church isn't a family. Your church is a dysfunctional family, okay? Because a healthy family deals with crap, okay? They deal with it. There's, there's no more, there's no place that has more loving confrontation. There's no place where people grow more. There's no place where people get free of things more than in a healthy, functioning, growing family. Even one that's relatively dysfunctional in certain ways, because we're all a little weird. But one that's going in the right direction and knows what family is. There's, there's actually nothing more unhealthy in the world than families, because there's nothing with the capacity for so much health as a family. A family is an immersive community. It will, by definition, either do horrible things or wonderful things. And in a lot of families, it does a lot of both, right? Because you absorb what's there. And sometimes it's really bad stuff and good stuff all at the same time. And it just does it all to you. And you can go out in the world, and the world can't get this stuff out of you. Like, you've been out of your family for some of you for like decades, and like you're still doing stuff from your family of origin, even though your friends aren't like that, your spouse doesn't like it, the people you around aren't like that, and you're still doing it. So here's why. I'm walking down here for effect. Here's why. 
Because human beings are formed by immersion and absorption. It is a divine fact. It is what we're like. That's why you can't, that's why it's so hard to get free of some of the things that happened in your family. And it's why some of the strengths your family gave you seem so hardwired into you and they're such blessings. Because you absorb them so deeply. Do you understand? And the only, the only remedy for the problems of absorption, whether from your dysfunctional family, whether from your dysfunctional worldliness that you've absorbed from the world, is a counter-absorption, which requires a counter-immersion. Do you understand? Okay, there's some stuff I want to talk about that, but I'm not going to. So here are the two. Here's a couple things I want to, I want to challenge you with. The first is this. The health of the spiritual family is the most important thing there is. To us, okay? Because this is the eternal family. I mean, this is, this is, these, these are your brothers and sisters forever right here, okay, if you're a believer. And the, the question I want to ask you is, are you willing to do whatever it takes for this family to be healthy, to be growing in godliness, to be incredibly deeply loving, to be a place where we practice difficult affirmation, Right? It feels a little awkward to tell people you appreciate them and you love them and you saw them do that thing and like, it, or to say, hey, let's not do that or to deal with stuff, right? Will you demand that the elders that you elect be the kind of men who deal with stuff healthily? Will you demand that? Will you demand that of yourself? Listen, the kids in this place, the people in this church they will be—they're so much more affected by just the ether in here. Just the general—just stuff between us. It's hanging in the air that they feel and they absorb than anything I'll ever say. If I say something, and especially the younger people, but anybody in here takes it to heart, they go, oh man, that thing Nick said, it's so meaningful. It's only meaningful because of the rest of us. If they see you and you and you and all of us like doing that stuff and then I say this is what we're doing and they go Yeah, I want to do that. It's because you're doing it Like i've been to churches where the people aren't doing any of it And the person says all the right things they preach all the right stuff. It's all from the bible. It transforms no one Because there's too much anti-absorption right there while they're listening to the sermon And so What's happening here isn't this. It's not me talking. The most important thing for the church you're a part of is not the preacher, right? The preacher's like, he's manning the rudder, but ships that are being steered can still sink, right? I've literally piloted something that I was steering that sank while I was piloting it. It's very awkward. (laughs) But listen, listen, the kids who say when they're 24, they're like, I grew up at High Point Church. They are, they are probably not going to talk about me. They won't even be conscious that I was here. But they will know how you treated them, whether you talked to them in the hallways, whether you remembered what happened to them or this athletic thing they did or they, what they're struggling with in school or the fact that their mom has been dead for two years today or like that, that's what matters to people. What will matter to people in terms of their growth is when they confess to you, how did you treat them? Or did, they, did you remember the thing they told you last week? 
Or that's what matters to people. It's like this, it, it's intangible. There's no way to cheat. There's no way to market our way through this. There's no shortcut. The substance is there or it isn't, and everybody feels it, even the non-Christians. You don't even have to have the spirit to feel it because it's just sheer universal human health. That's all. That's what Jesus creates. He creates spiritual life that creates human health. Because what Jesus is doing is taking us back to what we were created to be as human beings in the first place, right? And everybody knows that in their guts somehow. And so they'll walk in here. They don't have to be a Christian. They've never read a page of the Bible, and they know. It just—you can—it's like a fragrance. You just kind of smell it. Are you—and listen, you're going to become what we all are if you immerse here, right? Your kids are. Hopefully your grandchildren are. People yet unborn. <clears throat> are you willing to do whatever it takes so that the ether in here is the most spiritually nourishing broth of life there can possibly be that people can walk around in? So that the natural absorption that comes, or if they imitate anybody here, that something good will come of that. Some substance, faith, trust in God. Do you understand? Are you, are you willing to make that one of the highest priorities of your life? Because it really, it should be, right? And the second thing related to this is, are you willing to immerse yourself in it? We say we want substance— It is a divine can't that you can't absorb substance without spiritual immersion. If you say you want to have spiritual substance in your life, now, in a month from now, in five years from now, it is a divine can't. You can't do it without immersion. So will you immerse? I I don't know what that looks like. I don't know how many times you have to be at church. That's not the question. The question is, what functions like immersion? What gets you to the spiritual temperature you need to find? And for some of you, it's like AA meetings. Like, you need to find one somewhere every week or three times a week. Like, it's—and for others of us, it's different, but it's got to be immersive. The second thing is this, and I'm just going to spend a couple minutes on this. It's not just a question of proximity. It's a question of intimacy. Right? Immersion has to have a certain kind of intimacy. If I could get in the water and have on a dry suit, I have something that keeps the temperature water off of me. I'm in the water, but I'm not changing temperature. Or much slower. Now, guys like me, who don't really like to be hugged, and so on, um, the idea that it takes intimacy, I just don't really like that word, okay? Uh, Unless I'm going out on a date with my wife. Like, I— I'm not into it. But the word intimacy actually is built off of the Latin root for the inmost, right? The intimus. It's what's inmost in you, right? That's, that's where the word comes from. And what intimacy really is, is not—it's not even tenderness between a mother and child. Not literally. That's just an application of it. It's not what happens between lovers. Not literally, unless it's a spiritual and emotional one. And it's—but it, intimacy is, is just as much exists between people who've gone to war together, right? Because that horrific experience— becomes inmost to people, right? If you've experienced something like it, it becomes inmost to them, and they, they have it together, and it bonds them, and it, 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 it ties and fuses their lives together. And the fact is, is that whatever is inmost to you is what will cause you to be drawn to other people. And you see, for a lot of us, there is what's inmost, and then there's a lot of other things that are deep inside of us, and a lot of those other things are all of our preferences, and how we define ourselves, and what we think of ourselves as— right? 
And those are actually things we do not want to bond over, right? If we, if we bond over our, what we like on Facebook, we're all going to hate each other. We're not going to love each other, or we'll be all the exact same person. We'll be growing by loving each other, right? We'll, and we'll bond over things like our race or our education level or our income level or all kinds of other things that we think are, make us who we are. The only way for those things not to be what binds us and divides us is if the intimus, the inmost thing, is Christ and the gospel and the mind of Christ— and no longer being conformed to the image of the world, but being transformed by the renewing of our mind and recognizing that we have everything we need in Christ for life and godliness and so on. You see, it's only when we actually believe the gospel, not so that we say it, not even so that we do stuff at church, but so that it becomes our intimus, will we begin to bond with each other in such a way as to produce Immersion, imitation, and absorption. Do you understand? As long as we don't believe the gospel together, we can't have the spiritual intimacy that creates change. Do you understand? Which means a couple of things. If you haven't believed in Jesus yet, but you're hoping to absorb the change that you like in that, in some people, you might come to church and be like, I just really like how Jamie is. She's just such a nice person. I feel like if I come to this church, I'll, you know, I'll get, I'll become a little more like her. No, you won't. You won't. Maybe a little bit, but only in good situations. No, no, no. The only way to become more like her or to become more like me or to become more like you, right, is if there, we share the intimacy of Christ being the center of Christ being all, of Christ being Lord, of having one master. Do you understand? When those are shared, when we come together, there's a natural absorption that happens. When it's not, it doesn't. So if you haven't believed in Jesus, you can't absorb godliness until Jesus becomes your intimus, right? You, you, you're still sealed off. You can't—you don't know what you're absorbing. It doesn't fit. It doesn't flow in. Something has to happen. And for a lot of us, right, it's not that we haven't accepted Jesus. It's that we have two masters, but the heart that has two masters cannot be intimate in that way with the heart that has just one. You'll think that person's too religious, or you won't, there's something you won't like about them, or there's something, or you'll be afraid you'll be judged, or I just don't believe how they do or something. But there will be a, a, a framing of distance you'll create so that absorption can't happen. Even if you come to the same church, even if you're part of the same spiritual family, even if you share the same bed— A divided heart has a different intimus than one that has one master, and that master is Christ. Do you understand? And so it doesn't just require us fighting for the whole community, and it doesn't just require us immersing ourselves in God's immersive transformational community. It also requires that we give ourselves to sharing the same cord center, and the only thing that can bind us together is different people who have to put up with each other in family is Christ himself the only master in the purposes of the gospel. Do you understand? That's why we have to chase those four marks in Christ. Because what that does is it forms this intimate center to us. And when we all have it, we naturally are bounded to each other in our core passion, which creates this closeness in which absorption flows very easily back and forth. And in which we can strengthen each other so much faster, so much deeper. And then the way we're strengthening each other is the same with the Spirit— is wanting to change us. And it produces transformation in a way we've, we've only probably experienced at certain moments. So the band's going to come back up here. And what I, what I want you to think about for the next like four and a half minutes, as you sing, even if you don't sing, okay, they'll sing, they have microphones. You won't even know if you're singing or not, okay? Um, 
I want you to think about those three questions. Are you immersed and or will you immerse yourself? Is your center intimacy, the thing that binds you and allows for that absorption, the thing that opens you up to what can come in, is that Christ only one master? Is it him? And if not, will you make it him right now? Will you confess and will you believe and will you say it to him in prayer? And will you ask somebody to pray for you and will you do whatever it takes? And if you haven't been baptized, will you get baptized out of faith? Right? And third, will you do whatever it takes for the rest of your life to make this family the healthiest, most godly, most substantive grove of the greatest oaks of righteousness people have ever imagined. And you can be one of those. Because it's not, it has no idea the quality of your person. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. You can be one of those oaks. I don't care what's happened before this moment. You can be forgiven, restored, bound up, healed, splinted, helped, carried, built, forged into something amazing. Not infallible, but strong. Why don't you stand as I pray and as we start to sing. God, please help us to do this. Please help us to recognize that this last week, this last thing, this formational community thing, it's not a tack on, it's not a plug for the church at the end, but we will never combat the immersion of the hot sun of a worldly world without the cooling, soothing, and strengthening, reviving immersion into the cool waters of your church. When you help us become the pool of water together we're supposed to be, and will you help us be the kind of people who open ourselves to immersing ourselves in your community.